Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Passion sometimes has its painful side. It was the passion of my guest to find out about his parents that led to a five-year journey across several countries, discovering trauma, but also creating a Holocaust memoir. My guest is Max Friedman. He's author of Painful Joy, Holocaust Family Memoir, published by Amsterdam Publishers and available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Max, go to maxfriedman.net. And Max, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. There's two parts to my first question, why you decided to start this journey, and then why you decided to write a book about the journey. Well, I guess uh, the answer to both, perhaps, is that I had spent a good part of my life, actually most of my life, avoiding the subject of my parents and where they came from, what their stories were. Uh, I had heard enough when I was a child to know that I actually didn't want to know much more. My mother spoke about concentration camps only, not anything else about her life, virtually every day and every night, many, many times over and over. My father actually never spoke about anything in his life uh, except for 20 minutes when I was 20 years old, and I can explain that at some point. Sure. So it was actually spurred on by my grandson, uh, who one day asked me, because I had spoken to him just a little bit about my parents, and he was eight at the time, and I had told him that they were survivors. And he was intrigued by that idea, even at age eight. And he asked me, well, if they're survivors, then maybe you're a survivor, and then maybe my dad's a survivor, and maybe I'll be a survivor one day, and that'll be a good thing, won't it? And I said, I don't really know. And so that was in 2016. And uh, I started to try to figure out who they were, and particularly who they were before the Holocaust, because they survived the Holocaust, and then they met after the Holocaust, they had lost their families there. So it was a journey to chronicle their lives, to restore some humanity to their lives, and to try to see them beyond being survivors which is the way I actually saw them as well my whole life. Uh, and so I decided the best way to do that is to write a book. I, I write for a living, and I had written, ghost wrote some books for some other people, and I never knew anything about I knew more about them than I knew about me. Was it cathartic for you to write this book and to research it, or was it a mix uh, of it was joy beyond, and pain? Yeah, the the. It was less cathartic and more just surprising. I, I was surprised by this few stories that I heard and found out that they weren't actually true. And that the stories that I didn't hear, but I that I discovered were extraordinarily surprising in so many different ways. So it actually made me happy at a certain point that I actually got to know them better without having to deal with their traumas every day as I did when I was a young boy and a child. It's interesting that, in the one hand, as you mentioned twice now, that your mother shared that, or not shared it, but talked about her trauma on a daily basis, and yet you knew so little about her. Clearly, she communicated that anxiety, if that's the term, to you as a younger 
person. And I'm surprised that it didn't occur to you earlier on in your life to find out more since she was drumming that into you. I, and I don't say drumming in a negative way. I just mean that clearly she was experiencing pain from the trauma and she was expressing it, whereas your father wasn't. So I'm surprised again that you didn't start that journey yeah. earlier in yeah, life. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised too, in a certain <laughs> way. But, but I think I was trying very hard. I had an older sister. I have an older sister. But I think both of us were trying very hard to distance ourselves from the pain that we saw every day. And we just didn't want to know. For example, my, my parents spoke only Yiddish to us, actually, for most of my life. I only spoke to them in English. I never learned Yiddish. I knew, I understood what they said, but I actively did not want to involve myself in their world. Uh, their world was made up when we had friends, and they were only very few, of other survivors. And it was a very sad, somber world. And I decided, as my own way of surviving their survival, not to enter it, to be supportive of it, to do everything we could for them. We, we, we would wake them up from their nightmares. They suffered from PTSD, clearly. Uh, but But I just didn't want to know more. And then Periodically, I dipped my my uh, my curiosity into their world. Uh, when my mother and father had passed away, the month that my mother died, we went back to Sweden, where I was born and where they met for the first time in 1998. And I met a woman who knew them, who was another survivor who was in this little town. So I dipped in, and then I said, okay, that's enough. And then I dipped in again. And that's enough. And then when, when they were gone and my grandson asked, and I didn't, I, I, I was uh, embarrassed, ashamed. And I decided it was time to know everything I possibly could. It sounds though the reason that you dipped in and dipped out was self-preservation, especially as a, as a kid. Right. I, I think I, yeah. I, I became, you know, the second generation of Holocaust survivors are called second generation Holocaust survivors with a good reason. They survive their, their parents' survival. And, mm -hmm. and it is a traumatic experience to actually do that. Uh, I talked to a psychiatrist once for some silly reason. And I talked well, about... I don't know if that's a silly reason. I mean, that was, well, well, given your I, background. I, I, didn't mean, <laughs> I didn't mean to actually enter into a conversation about my past. And we were talking about a work problem. And he was an industrial psychiatrist. And he asked me a little bit about my past. And, and he was a bully. And I stayed with the company and I stayed with the bullying and was fairly artful about it. I did. I worked very hard. Uh, he could never get rid of me, but he was just a nasty guy. And the psychiatrist said to me one day, he said, you know, Max, you're doing very well in surviving. Your parents survived. And you're following their model. But one day you'll wake up and you'll say you're surviving sufficient. And so if I were you, I would get out of this place as quickly as I can and find a life that wasn't about surviving, but about living and thriving. And did you do that? No. Mm. I was a survivor. <laughs> yeah. I, it was wise advice, but given your state of mind, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I just, uh, I, I never moved to do that. And it was yeah. only in, in this five years of writing this book and presenting it not only to my family, but to the world, 
did I have insights about them that I never had before and insights about myself and and my sister and and how we were brought up and why it was the way it was and what they actually you know we we can never begin to be live in their shoes or do anything like that they they were in camps for most of the most of the five or six years of the war in Poland but just to create an understanding and a greater empathy it was less catharsis more empathy when you started this journey of research and writing where did you begin how did you know where to go i was so clueless you know i mean people in those uh, this was only in 2016 so people were doing all kinds of genealogical research and things like that but I had never done much like that. I the the memoirs that I ghost wrote, the people were alive. They had all kinds of records. They had all kinds of letters. It was easy. It took a lot of time, but it was easy or easier. And I I had no idea where to begin. I mentioned it to a friend of mine who said, "Well, you know, maybe this this guy I know can help you." I just came back from South Africa where he was born, and he said. Uh, I went to a reunion of our high school, and I met this guy who I hadn't seen for years. And he said that his son was working in Munich in a Holocaust study center. Maybe you can get in touch with him, and he can start you on your journey. And that's what I did. Lovely, lovely man. Not Jewish, but somebody, Austrian actually, but working in Munich and spending his life trying to figure out what happened and why, and to try in some way to communicate that so it perhaps would educate people enough that it wouldn't happen again. Did he help you? And that's what I did. And did he yeah, help he, you? He, he sent me a list of 200 things I should do right away. That's helpful, and, right. Yeah, so it took five years to do maybe 50 of those things. <laughs> and, and, but, the, you know, you, you start one place and you get to someplace else. And, and it just went on and on and on. And then finally in 2018... Uh, two years later, we thought we had enough, my, my wife and I uh, thought we had enough to go on that we would go to all these places and we would try to see what that was like and where did they live and how did they live. And, and that was extraordinarily surprising. We, we, we found that where my mother lived for 25 years in Krakow was actually the, the setting for Schindler's List, the Krakow Ghetto. And, and it became a tourist attraction. And the first time I ever spoke to anybody who I didn't know was when we went there in October of 2018, and we were standing around in the courtyard of this, what was a tenement in the uh, Jewish area of Krakow, and there a guide was guiding their, their, their group through. And I had this sudden something in me, and I went over to them. I said, you know, my mother was here. Her, my grandfather, who I never met, and my grandmother were here, and and they, everybody, is no longer here. They were all they were all murdered except for my mother. And so, I just want to tell you that, and I didn't even know why. I, I it, it just sort of came out. Then I choked up, and I and I tell myself, "What are you doing? <laughs> why are you doing this?" And it was this extraordinarily emotional experience, and going to Auschwitz, where my father's wife and two children were murdered. 
and knowing that when you walk in the grounds of Auschwitz, you're actually walking on the ashes of the crematorium uh, remains because they had nowhere to put those ashes anymore. So they just put them into the ground and you're walking on your family. And those kinds of things just happened. And, and the more it ha happened, the more I decided I need to tell more people about what happened. You mentioned your wife. Did she help you all along on this five-year quest? She, she, she was my, my steady hand. She was a librarian, so she knew something about research. But she helped me emotionally, I think, more than anything else. She was my companion. She understood. Uh, she made sure I wasn't screwing things up. And she, she, I needed someone to sort of steady me sometimes, because uh, even, even now, Sometimes I still choke up about certain things. Well, it's a deep subject, and it's a painful subject. So, yes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You mentioned that you were looking in different directions. And, of course, anytime you research something, there's a million threads out there that you can pull. But at some point, you made the decision that you had enough to complete the book. When was that point for you? Yeah, after we returned, and just one thing after another hit us, I, I just said, there is enough here. I don't need, I don't need to feel anymore. I think I feel genuinely the way I should feel. Uh, a little embarrassed, a little sad, a, a little happy. I mean, sort of meeting your grandparents, even if they're just on ID cards that the Germans issued or in actually we were in Schindler's factory in Krakow, taking a tour. And there was an exhibit of the Krakow ghetto. And who do I see was my grandfather and a picture in the ghetto of him with some other people. And I had just met him the day before in the Krakow archive. So it was... You, so you, you, you recognized the photo? There was no name yes, attached to the yes, photo. Yes, yes. And photo. I, then I asked my wife, I said, am I right about this? Is this true? And she said, yeah, looks like that to me. And That's amazing. It, 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 these were startling uh, revelations. And, and I knew that I had to write it down. And I had a little diary that I kept. And I, I wrote sort of my just impressions of things. And um, then I sat down and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And I showed it to a friend of mine who's an editor. And she said, well, if you just do this and this and this and that, more people will have access to this story. And I did that, and I found the publisher, and that that's it. Why is it important for you to get this story out and to get it published and for people to read it? What What is the main force driving you? I, I think at this point, besides the sort of idea that I had of them, which was a very sort of one-dimensional way of looking at people. And I think Holocaust survivors, often your first impression is, well, A, that they're damaged, B, they're sad, C, oh, thank God it never happened to me, and, you know, let's make sure it never happens again in some sort of vague way. And, and you don't see the story behind the story. And I wanted to get people for my, for the sake of other, not just survivors, but other people who, who suffer from traumas of one sort or another, families that suffer from traumas, and and live with those traumas, perhaps their whole lives, 
but at least can get a perspective on it. So I thought there was that. There was my own questioning, what would I do? And what would others do in their shoes? Why why did they stay? Could they go anywhere? Did they have, did they know, you know, one day everything is fine. It's sort of like the pandemic. You know, one day everything's going along very well. And then the next day, you know, for the next two, three, four years, you're afraid of living or dying. And they didn't know how bad it was going to be. Uh, they suffered from anti-Semitism their entire lives in Poland. But this was different. And I just thought it was time to tell people so that they could see people beyond being strangers. I think when you know, anyone who reads Painful Joy or visits the maxreedman.net website, where I try to sort of enhance all of these with other documentation, other pictures, all kinds of things related to my time in Sweden. And they they find that they were strangers, and then they're not strangers anymore. Now they're people, and they're people that you care about. And I, I wanted people to care about these two strangers. Do you think it's because the sheer scale of the killings that took the humanity out of it? Because yeah, it's I, hard I, to I focus on two people, let alone six million. Yeah, and 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 the, the the sad part is is the six million who perished and or who were murdered, and the ones who survived. Everybody has a story. All all these people have stories. They had lives before. They had families before. They had joys and sorrows before, like everybody else. And yet, we sort of focus on the number, the six million. We focus on the method, in you you know inhumane beyond measure, the mechanical, the factories of death. Uh, once I read a, an interview that the New Yorker had with, with Joseph Mengele and the angel of death in Auschwitz. And he was the person who was on the selection when my mother arrived in Auschwitz with her sister. And he was asked about how he could do this, how he could move, tell, you know, these these men and women and children, and just know that you're sending them to their death, or in his case as well, to experiments mm -hmm. that he did. Uh, and he just said, they're ghosts. They're already dead. I don't see them as being people anymore. And the Nazis did an extraordinary amount of work in dehumanizing these people to the point that neighbors would look at them in a whole new way, in a way which that they were ghosts, that they were not worthy of even be be seen as humans anymore, and and I think that's what we do sometimes when we in our own political divisions at a much not as deep and as crazy a level, but but we start looking at people just as as ideologies or as religions or as backgrounds or as immigrants or whatever, as opposed to just individual humans. What was the most surprising thing you found out in your research? Well, the the, the most interesting thing that I found out was, uh, as I alluded to a little bit, that my parents, my father again, had told me a story, and his story. And I asked because I had gotten a bad lottery number during the Vietnam War. I was in college, but I was still liable to be called up to serve, 
And so I decided, I found out that you could get an emotional deferment if somebody in your family emotionally depended upon you, as opposed to just financially depended upon you, because I was a kid. So I told my father, you have to tell me something about your past. You'd have to, because I have to write a statement and you have to sign it. Then I have to go in front of the draft board and talk about it. And he said, okay. And we were living in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. And I grew up in Coney Island and after we came from Sweden. And uh, he told me for 20 minutes about the last time he saw his wife and two little girls. So this was the first time I knew he had a wife and two little girls. He didn't tell me their names. He didn't tell me where they were. That I had to find out later. But he told me the last time, and it turned out that he had made up that story. That story couldn't have happened the way he said, because he was already in a concentration camp 300 miles away in Germany when they were taken and, and sent to Auschwitz. But he, Similarly, si- my but, he, mother- but he signed the paper, though, right? Even though No, he signed the paper, and I think he believed the story. I think mm. he was so filled with shame and guilt about not dying with them, honestly, that, that he had to make up a story where the three of the four of them were hidden. Uh, there was a selection in his little ghetto of a town, and, and that he was with them, and he tried to save them in some way. And then he went out for food, and then the next day they were gone. It's true, the next day they were gone. He wasn't there going out for food. He was in a concentration camp already, quarrying or breaking up rocks. But that was that was his memory, I think. And he was happy to have that memory, because otherwise I think he couldn't have gone on. And my mother similarly made up fantastical stories which I found that were mostly not true. And, was that a coping and, mechanism for her then as oh, well? Oh, yeah. I, I think she she had spent her life, I think, even in... in she'd always been a refugee. She'd always been a survivor. Her her uh, family fled during World War One to Prague. They were living in Poland. And they went to Prague because the fighting had gotten too close. And they stayed for five years in Prague, mostly living on the streets. And then coming back and going to Krakow and living there. Her father was a tailor. Her brothers were tailors and hatters and all of that stuff. And and this was not the life she wanted. This was a very poor, dismal sort of life, eking out a living. And so she made up the story about how her her first husband was a dance instructor and had a dance studio in Krakow. And he was teaching all these Orthodox Jews how to dance. God only knows that Orthodox Jews don't dance with each other, uh, particularly the Polish tango, which is what was being taught in those days. So the whole story fell apart, but not until I went there looking for the dance studio. And then I found that the dance studio was just in her head because she said that she had made all this money and then the Germans took it all away. And in fact, uh, when you find the records of the, her interviews in Sweden, when they were trying to find her a job, she admitted that her, her husband was a luggage maker and she was a washerwoman. She took in people's laundry to make an extra $2, the, the equivalent of an extra $2 a week so that they could have enough food to eat. And, and he was, fortunately, he was actually considered an essential worker at the time because the luggage was being used by the Jews to go on the transports 
to the concentration camps and the killing camps. And he didn't know that, but, right. but that's why he even survived as long as he did. I have two questions. I'm saving one for the end because it ties in with what you started our conversation with. So sure. I'll, I'll hold that for a second. What do you want people to get from this book? What, what do you want people to take away from this book in a general sense and then maybe a specific sense? I think in a, in, in a specific sense, I, I guess I wanted to introduce these two people as people. And I want people to feel that they can meet a stranger who they don't care about or don't know. And by the end of the book, say, oh, my God. Uh, when, when my father finally dies from Alzheimer's, mostly from being beaten over the head, uh, all those years in the camps, you say, Oh my God. And, and that restores their humanity. That's the way I look at it. And it transforms that, that reader in some way. On a, a more global level, I think I want people to understand what hate can do how bad it can be, and how trauma and hate can be passed on from generation to generation when it came to even the people who didn't stand up for the Jews very much, although there were, there were many who did, who were, who were valiant, in, in, you know, uh, who were not Jewish, but, but who risked their lives. But many didn't. Many neighbors didn't. At the end of the 30s, Poland was looking for a way to export 85% of the Jewish population of Poland to Madagascar, of all places, and resettle them in the jungles. It didn't work out. Hitler thought it was actually a brilliant idea, but it didn't work out. And instead, they just were killed. Uh, so I, I want people to know that that can happen, and it can happen at any moment in time. One day, everything's fine. The next day, the world has turned upside down, and you have no control necessarily. The last question and the most important one, what was the reaction of your grandchild when you presented well, the book? It's in, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's, he now actually is, is living with us this year. They, my, my son lives in China uh, most of the time, and, and, uh, and Jacob is here with us, and Jacob is named after my grandfather. But uh, I, I gave the draft to three people, my sister, my wife, and Jacob, the draft of the book. And, and he was older by then. And I asked him, and he said, it was a tough read, he said. He said, but I'm, I'm tough. I'm a tough guy. It's okay. And my sister, who really wanted to dis distance herself from this project because it was too painful for her. She was older. She knew more of what was going on and, and about the fighting and all the craziness that was going on in our house. And she said, she's, you know, cried. Everybody cries. But, but, you know, she said, you have to, you have to do this. I have to share this with as many people as I can. This is important and I'm so glad you did it. And my wife said, well, thank God that's over with, I think. You know, now maybe we can get back to somewhat of a normal life. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Max Friedman. He's author of Painful Joy, a Holocaust family memoir, published by Amsterdam Publishers and available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Max, go to Max Friedman, 
www.thinkingmaxpodcast.net. And Max, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.